So last Sunday we looked at probably the most famous of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill, and of course there are two ways to kill. You can kill someone with your hands, you can kill someone inside of your heart. King David indirectly killed Uriah to cover up his arrangements, his uh, affair, if you will, his indiscretion with Bathsheba. But for this morning, we are going to look at one of the most infamous of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, look at verse 14, please. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou, in the singular, like you, not in the sense of Israel as a nation. And of course, you know, there are two types of adultery. There is spiritual adultery and there is sexual adultery. If you think of Babylon, Babylon, of course, is religious. Babylon is, of course, economical. Babylon is political. Babylon is religious. And when these two come together, they are committing spiritual adultery. Verse 14 again, thou in the singular. This goes back to what we said some weeks ago, how the children of Israel were offered this covenant with Jehovah. Nobody was coerced into accepting this covenant. They agreed to this covenant. And of course, we are way back in the Old Testament under the law. There's very little, as far as the Ten Commandments are concerned, which will be relevant for those of us which are living today. We are living under the law of Christ, uh, the gospel of the grace of God, but more specifically, the law of Christ. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Go to Genesis chapter 2. If I was to question maybe five or six, seven or eight people in my town and ask them to define adultery, I would suggest that probably 95% would define it from the standpoint of the state, not from the standpoint of scripture. One of the problems that we've had, and when I say we, I mean mankind in general, is that we've all been conditioned to accept the traditions of men, the commandments of men. You won't find anywhere in either testaments anybody coming together, a man or woman, or woman with a man, to exchange rings, to take a vow, to stand in the presence of a vicar, a priest, or a justice of the peace. That came much later, and now everyone in society, whether in the West or in the East, or in the Americas, or Australasia, makes no difference. Nearly every single man or woman that has ever been married has either been married in a church or a registry office. Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, look at verse 18 please. And the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. I want to find someone to keep Adam company. It's not good for a man to be on his own all of the time. And here this is the first marriage in the scripture. Look at verse uh, 19. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. So Adam is first of all Lord over the animal world. The Lord Jesus Christ is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And here Adam, as a literal man, has been created, of course, uh, from the earth. Whereas the Lord Jesus Christ was begotten and came via heaven, of course. Look at verse 20. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found an help, mate, help, meet, help, assistant for him. He needed, he needed an assistant. He needed someone to come alongside him. And of course, Adam is a type of Christ. Eve is a type of the church. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman 
and brought her unto the man. So she comes from Adam, she comes from the rib, and of course many feminists over the years have taken great delight in mocking this piece of scripture. This is also, incidentally, the first operation found in scripture. This is a supernatural operation. He puts Adam into a deep sleep, a bit like Abraham, and we will discuss him this morning. And once he awakes, he's got a wife, which means that Eve had no part to play in this, which means Adam had no part to play in this. Which means you have no part to play in your salvation. When Christ said it was finished, it was finished. And many churches don't like the idea that people are saved solely thanks to the Saviour. A lot of churches like to keep people in bondage to the law. We call that Lordship salvation. And it's very rare to find a true church that preaches the gospel of the grace of God. Look at verse 23. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, woman, because she was taken out of man. So she comes via Adam. This couple were created, had no mother as such. Their father was God Almighty. Going back to Luke chapter 3, how Adam is referred to as the Son of God. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is also referred to as the Son of God. And of course, this confuses people. Well, is Jesus Christ the only begotten Son of God, or is he just another Son of God? And of course, if you, you know, if you have a King James Bible, you know that he is the only begotten, the only begotten, the monogonies, the one and only, directly from heaven, the Lord from heaven, the second member of the Trinity, whereas, of course, Adam came from the ground. He was made from the ground. Look at verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. So no third party is present, there's no vicar, there's no priest, there's no pastor, there's no rabbi, there's no mullah, there's no justice of the peace, there's no third party standing, marrying, overseeing this ceremony, there's no repeat after me, there's no bridesmaids, there's no page boys, there's no you may now kiss the bride. That's tradition, all tradition. And yet like I say, if I was to question, say 10 people or thereabouts in my town and ask them to explain their definition of marriage, they couldn't do it. They would really struggle. Or if I was to say to them, can you show me from the scripture what a marriage is? They couldn't do it. Look at verse 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. This, of course, is pre the fall. Everything is innocent. Everything is good and proper. Go to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Some weeks ago, we spoke about Elkanah who was married to two women, Penina and Hannah. And it's my belief that Elkanah was probably a saved man, was able to love more than one woman at a time. And when his first wife, being Hannah, was unable to conceive, he went to Penina and she gave him sons and daughters. And yet Hannah stayed in that polygamous marriage, a very common custom back in the Old Testament. And Elkanah, the father of Samuel, and Hannah, the mother of Samuel, would produce one of the greatest prophets in the entire Bible. Matthew chapter 19, Matthew chapter 19, look at verse 1 please. And it came to pass, that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee, and came into the coasts of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. So I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ had great charisma, was able to connect with people, I believe, Probably Elkanah was back in the Old Testament. I'm convinced that David and Solomon and Josiah and probably Saul to some extent all had charisma 
we're able to connect with people. It's always imperative to be able to connect with people. If you come across a rather boring preacher or a boring pastor or a boring evangelist, you will fall asleep. You won't be able to uh, stay focused for very long, and that's not always the fault of the person in question, but as far as the Lord Jesus Christ was concerned. He, of course, was sinless, first of all. You can't find faults in him. But secondly, I am convinced that had I lived back in the first century and seen the Lord Jesus Christ, I would have been just mesmerized just to watch him, to observe him, to hold on to his every word. I mean, he lived by example. You really struggle. You really struggle to find faults in him. But you find it in me. You'll find it in Elkanah. You'll find it in all of the Old Testament greats. Look at verse 3. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Is it acceptable, Lord, to get rid of your wife for any particular reason? Of course, at this time in the history of Israel, divorce was incredibly uh, common, like it is today. I think two and three marriages today will collapse. And here, they want to tempt him. They want to prove him. They want to show him up. They want to expose him in front of the people. And every time they would try to do that, it would backfire terribly. Look at verse 4. And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Genesis chapter 2. And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. And they twain, and these two, shall be one flesh. One flesh in the sense of unity. Going back to the Trinity. Three persons, but one God. And of course, they knew this, but over the years, tradition had crept in like today. The doctrines of men had crept in like today. I think it's around the time of the Romans that rings were uh, presented at weddings, and a third party was called to marry a person to a person, like a man to a woman. But it wasn't always the way. It wasn't always the case. Verse 7, they say unto him, why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? Writing of divorcement like a piece of paper. And he saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. He allowed you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. Going back to Adam and Eve. Almighty God created Eve from Adam. Put the two of them together. You won't find anywhere back in Genesis where it says how Adam loved Eve. I'm sure he did, but you won't find it. Or how she loved Adam. And I'm sure she did, but you won't find it. And some have suggested it was a marriage of convenience. They had to procreate, you see. They had to commence the human race. But of course, up until Genesis chapter 2, nobody has fallen. And of course, a serpent probably fell. Probably the fall of mankind. But as far as the Garden of Eden was concerned, and the standing of Adam and Eve were concerned, it was all good. It was all good. At verse 9, And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. So again, this term adultery is the most infamous in the Ten Commandments. Everyone knows about adultery, and yet one more time, most people would say this, that unless you are married in a church, or a mosque, or a synagogue, or a registry office, or a temple... You're not legally married. That's what they would say. Or they'll say this. If you haven't got a marriage license, it's not really a marriage. If rings weren't exchanged, if vows weren't taken, it's not really a marriage. That's what the state would say. That's what the state thinks. And of course, we've all been raised to believe such a thing. We are all, can I say, indoctrinated by the rules of mankind. 
And some years ago, I remember watching a preacher who was preaching on this very subject. And he spent 25 minutes going all around the houses, trying to harmonize what the Word of God says, what a marriage is, contrast that to what society says, what a marriage is. And it was pretty painful to watch. All around the houses, go to Leviticus chapter 20. So, on the one hand, Hannah was in a three-way marriage. She was a sister wife. She was sharing Elkanah, who I am sure loved uh, Hannah, and I'm sure she loved Elkanah. And perhaps he loved, he, uh, perhaps he loved Penina, and perhaps she loved him. And of course, back in uh, biblical times, it was very difficult for a woman to seek out a divorce. Elkanah technically was guilty of adultery, but even that isn't as clear as you would think. Hannah stays put, eventually gives birth to Samuel, and like we discussed a few weeks ago, would present him to the Lord, would lend him to the Lord. That's what the King James says, lend. And as a result of that, Almighty God would give her many children. Leviticus chapter 20, Leviticus chapter 20, look at verse 10, please. And the man that committed adultery with another man's wife, even he that committed adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And of course, that's what the law would suggest. But again, and the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. But that was very rare, very rarely enforced. We don't know if Penina was married before Elkanah found her. It's possible. We're not told that. But here, the commandment has been laid down in stone. You can't miss it. And I think from the beginning of the Ten Commandments, only one out of the Ten Commandments uh, would exclude the death penalty. Nine out of the ten, if you broke them, would result in the death penalty. One more time. And the man, not the woman, and the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Two or three witnesses would have to be found to substantiate this. And once that took place, then of course death would follow. Go to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. But it's not as simple as that. Every time you think you've got a subject clear in your mind, every time you approach the word of God and you prepare to do a message like this, or you are trying to learn the Bible yourself, trying to get a subject clear in your mind, you realise in five minutes, it's not as easy as you would think. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 4, look at verse 19 please. And Lamech took unto him two wives, the name of the one was Adar, and the name of the other Zillah. And he's got two wives, and this will be a common custom found throughout the entire Bible. Look at verse 23. And Lamech said unto his wives, Adar and Zillah, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech, hearken unto my speech. For I have slain a man to my wounding, and a young man to my hurts. I've killed someone, and I'm in bad company. I'm following the customs, if you will, of Cain. Look at verse 24. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, seventy and sevenfold. So Lamech was probably an unsaved man. Let's not get ahead of ourselves wasn't one of the greatest guys in scripture but he's found in genesis chapter 4 he's got two wives technically an adulterer and here he's killed someone and he knows that the shedding of blood will call for the shedding of blood going back to what we looked at last sunday how thou shalt not kill 
go to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. The way this book is laid out, and I'm referring to the King James Bible, is like dynamite. This book will heal you. This book will hurt you. This book will console you. This book will cut you. It depends how you approach it. If your heart's right with the Lord, he will open it up to you, allow you to read it, harmonize it, get a blessing, and bless others. But if your heart's not right, he will allow you to hang yourself. Genesis 25, look at verse 1, please. Then again, Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah. So Sarah is dead by now, and old Abraham is way up in years, and he's still sexually active. He's still able to uh, enjoy relations. Look at verse 2. And she bare him Zimran, and Joshan, and Medan, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shuah. So the sons are here found in verse 2. And as always, the attention to detail is very helpful. Look at verse 6. But unto the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac his son, while he yet lived eastward unto the east country. He's got concubines. And many times we overlook Abraham, we are focused on David and Bathsheba. And I'm convinced that David loved Bathsheba, Abigail and Michal. I think it's very clear to me that you can love more than one woman at any given time. I think David, like I say, was a very passionate man, a very loving man, a very charismatic man, a very powerful man. And here Abraham has got concubines in the plurality and of course, you know that concubines were nearly always young women. Young women, maids. He's got a second wife because Sarah has died. Nothing wrong with remarrying after the death of your first wife. There are three grounds for remarriage, incidentally. Death, desertion, and of course, fornication. Adultery going back to Matthew chapter 19. Technically, Hannah could have divorced Elkanah for her situation, finding him marrying another woman but it was pretty difficult for women to uh, sue or divorce their husbands uh, for adultery or fornication look at verse 7 and these are the days of the years of abraham's life which he lived an hundred threescore and fifteen years a wonderful long life never once was abraham chastised for marriages and the plurality and concubines are also referred to as wives and i'll show you that in a few moments the greatest sin in scripture if you don't know is a sin of idolatry Almighty God would overlook sexual sins, but he won't overlook idolatry. That's what caused Solomon to be cut down in his prime, not even 60 years of age. And of course, Solomon would have a thousand wives and many concubines. Eight. Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age. An old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. He was saved long before this took place, of course. And as years went by, and his ministry started to come to an end. He got lonely, as people do. Sought him out, another wife, which he did. Keturah, verse 1. But she wasn't enough for him. He wanted concubines. Verse 6, they gave him sons. Also found in verse uh, 6. And like I say, he would die at a good old age. And if you go back also to Deuteronomy 27, which I've got time to look at this morning. Uh, 27, 22. If you married your half-sister, you were put to death. And, of course, Abraham would marry his half-sister being Sarah. Of course, that took place before the law. Go to Genesis 29. No such thing as an easy passage in Scripture. No such thing as an easy exegesis. 
you think you've got one part of scripture down and you come across another part of scripture and it just blows you away. Genesis 29, Genesis 29, look at verse 21 please. And Jacob said unto Laban, give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled that I may go in unto her. So we know that Jacob loved Rachel. We know that it was a good relationship, like love at first sight. And he's been working for his wife for seven years, was it? And uh, his soon-to-be father-in-law is playing games with Jacob, who was the old schemer. Stole his brother's birthright. I mean, I find it fascinating when I look at the Old Testament and I profile the greats, whether men or women, and I see what they do and how they handle different situations. And we looked at Rachel some weeks ago and uh, her sister Leah, who were very superstitious, messing around with idols and false gods. And of course, Rachel would die prematurely. But I still believe she was saved. Look at verse 22. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast, a feast, a meal. Now, we get into tricky ground now. We get into a difficult part of scripture. What is a marriage when the uh, word of God talks about a marriage? How does scripture define a marriage? Scripture defines a marriage based on a meal, a feast, a public get-together. This is the first public wedding, if you will, in the Bible, pre the law, of course. But Jacob is one of the greats in the Old Testament, will be very active on the new earth, I believe. And of course, Jacob means James. James means Jacob. King James, like where the word of a king is, there is power. Jacob is royalty. Jacob is, of course, Israel. And here Laban has gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. John chapter 2, Jesus Christ is invited to a wedding in Cana. And it's my belief that the wedding in Cana, John chapter 2, is going to mirror 29, 21, 22 and beyond. And maybe two or three years ago, when I was going through the book of Genesis, I spent, in fact it took me eight years to finish all of Genesis. And I was looking at marriages very carefully in scripture. And I was thrown that when we get to the New Testament, like the Pauline epistles, there's no clear outline as to what a Christian couple living under grace, like Gentiles, are expected to do when they get married. And of course it dawned on me that the reason why we're not told that is because the New Testament, up until probably the time of Constantine, were following the Old Testament way of doing things, like a feast, like a marriage supper. There's no rings, there's no vows, there's no third party, like a priest or a pastor or a man in question, overseeing the marriage. I'm not against that, of course I'm not, but it's not found in Scripture. And here you've got a feast, verse 22. Look at verse 23. And it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him. And he went in unto her. So the father of the bride takes his daughter by the hand, leads her to the tents of her soon-to-be husband. You've got friends and family sitting all around a camp site, if you will. The tents are all erected. It's a big family occasion. He takes his daughter, soon to be the man's wife, and she goes in, the marriage is consummated, and that, of course, is a marriage. And this is a problem for a lot of Christians, because they haven't been taught this. They are of the belief that unless you are married in a church building, or in a registry office, or rings are exchanged, vows, licenses, so on and so forth, that you're not married. But that's not biblical. And sometimes people go to Romans chapter 13 and say, well, the powers that be are ordained of God, so 
we need to do what the law tells us, and there is justification for that. But you, you were never commanded by the state to be married. You were never commanded by the state to get a wedding license or a wedding certificate. You were commanded to pay taxes. You were commanded to obey the laws of the land. But as of right now, I can't think of any law in the UK where they say it is mandatory to be married. Of course it's not. Or it's mandatory uh, to get a license, so on and so forth. They don't say that. What they do say is if you decide to get married, you will need a license. You will need somebody to oversee the wedding to make it legit, to make it legal. And this goes back to many of these Mormon women in America that are married to certain men and they are wife number seven, wife number eight, nine or ten. Twenty children have been produced as a result of this harem and when the marriage breaks down and the sister wives leave their husbands, they try and sue their husband and of course they are told within five minutes that the marriage was never legal. The state didn't recognise it. It took place in some place somewhere out in middle America perhaps and they realised that their marriage was never legal, they have no rights and technically their kids are illegitimate as well and that causes all sorts of problems and pain. 24. And Laban gave unto his daughter Leah Zilpah his maid for an handmaid and it came to pass that in the morning behold it was Leah and he said to Laban what is this that thou hast done unto me? Did not I serve with thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? You get what you deserve. You reap what you sow. This goes back to Jacob deceiving Esau. And now Laban has deceived Jacob. Beguiled me. That's what Eve would say. The serpent beguiled me. And Laban said, verse 26, It must not be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. This is traditions of men. This was a custom back in... Old Testament times, back in antiquity, and here he wants to marry two of his daughters off simultaneously, like get them off his hands. 27. Fulfill her weeks, and we will give thee this also for the service which thou shalt serve with me yet seven other years. And Jacob did so, and fulfilled her week, and he gave him Rachel, his daughter, to wife also. He's got two wives. Laban has got a son-in-law. It's a marriage. Flesh meets flesh. No third-party presence. And Jacob did so, and fulfilled her week, and he gave him Rachel, his daughter, to wife also. So this is the first marriage back in the Old Testament, uh, infamous parts of Holy Writs. Look at verse 29. And Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, Bilah, his handmaid, to be her maid. And he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet seven other years. So two physical wives from sisters which under the law would be condemned, going back to Abraham, had he married Sarah, under the law would have been put to death. But this again shows the complexity of relationships and the honesty also of what relationships consist of. Look at chapter 30, uh, chapter 30, look at verse 9. When Leah saw that she had left bearing, she took Zippah, her maid, and gave her Jacob to wife. Jacob to wife. John chapter 4, Jesus Christ meets the woman at the well, a Samaritan. It's a wonderful picture of the Jewish Messiah reaching out to the Gentiles. And he says many things to this woman who goes on to be saved. But one of the things he says to the woman is, you've had five husbands and the one that you are now living with is not your husband. And of course, you know, she hadn't had five feasts or ceremonies. She had five common law husbands. And the one that she was currently living with was number six. 
See, when God looks at a couple, he looks at flesh meeting flesh. So if you've had five lovers in your life, you've had five husbands, if you are a woman, or if you are a man, you've had five lovers, you've had five wives. And that blows people away. Because they would say this, no, it's not a marriage if it doesn't take place in a church or a registry office. That's not Bible. That is not Bible. I know, I know, I know why people say that. They say that to make themselves feel better. But if you've had five lovers, six lovers, before you got married and settled down, you've had five husbands, you've had five wives. Going back to John chapter 4. The man that you are now living with is not your husband, and you've had many others as well. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Of course not. But what is adultery? What is a marriage? How are we to understand a marriage from the standpoint of scripture? Not as easy as you would think. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 6 please. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So Paul tells you one of the reasons why there's so much detail in the Old Testament, real detail, quite uh, vivid and graphic in parts, is not to condone what took place, but to warn those that will come down the line, not to follow in their steps. Look at verse 10. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. So, in other words, the Old Testament good and the bad would fall, would stumble, would do what they shouldn't do, and as a result... We are told about such behaviour, so we won't make the same mistakes. Look at verse 11. Now all these things happened unto them for ensamples, examples. And they are written for our admonition, our warning, upon whom the ends of the world are come. So don't think that it was a good thing for Elkanah to have two wives, or Lamech to have two wives, or Abraham to have a second wife with the death of his first, or concubines with his second wife. This simply shows you the complexity of saved people. Uh, go to Second Peter chapter 2. If you don't know, there are two sides, there are two parts to anyone who is born again. An old nature and a new nature. And if you are looking for a church or a fellowship, just ask such a place. Do they hold to the two natures of the believer? If they say no, turn around and walk out. Because you'll never get peace in your life until you understand the two natures of the believer. I was able to write an article about David Brainard probably 12 years ago now, a Calvinist in Pennsylvania, outreach uh, minister to the Red Indians, or Native Americans as, as they are now called, a very uh, good man, a very holy man, and he was in absolute agony. Absolute agony. He said, why would he be in agony? Because he didn't know what his old nature was all about. And uh, there were times when he was questioning his salvation. There was times he was questioning the existence of God. Nobody told him about the two natures of the believer. It wasn't taught in his school because he was a Calvinist. And Calvinists, for the most part, don't want to talk about the old nature. Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2. Look at verse 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, and yet he got drunk, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, unsaved, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example, example, unto those that should live ungodly, and delivered just lots, just lots, had to be dragged out of Sodom and Gomorrah, produced children with his daughters, of course he was intoxicated, his daughters got him drunk, but Lot was carnal, backslidden, 
was bartering with the angels when destruction was on the brink, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man, dwelling among them in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations, and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. If you are saved, you are not unjust. If you are saved, you are not unrighteous. And I've seen people over the years run over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and Paul says how the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And they put that on Christians. And they said to Christians, well, if you're doing these sins, you're not saved. You're not unrighteous. You are righteous. You have imputation. Paul is speaking about the world. And yes, there is a part, there is a part of 1 Corinthians 6, which is also dealing with one's inheritance, millennial inheritance. 10, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignities. So you see one of the reasons why we are given so much material back in the Old Testament. So to warn us not to make the same mistakes. And what do we do? We make the same mistakes time after time. Because we are flesh and blood. We are living in our fallen bodies in a fallen world. And when people try to talk you out of that, they are kidding themselves. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 17, please. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Look at verse 14, please. When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I was set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee which is not thy brother, like a Jew, ruling over the Jews. Jesus Christ is a king of the Jews. Look at verse 26. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Can't multiply horses to yourself, so only one horse per person. 17. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, but they did, of course, that his heart turned not away, Solomon's did. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. So a king, back in the Old Testament, could only have one horse, one gold cup, one silver plate. Well, of course not. Kings will entertain dignitaries. Kings will put on a show. Kings will have banquets. Again, this goes back to the complexity of what we are, what we are trying to comprehend. What is adultery? What is marriage? What is a relationship? How are we to understand this? And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, they shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life. Do you think David read the Bible every day of the week? Do you think Solomon did? A thousand wives? Do you think Saul did? King Saul was Israel's first king. He had concubines. That he may learn to fear the Lord his God. And that's how it should be. But what you should do and what you do do are not always the same thing. To keep all the words of this law and these statutes and to do them. That his heart be not lifted up above his brethren. And that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left. To the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom. He and his children in the midst of Israel. And of course Solomon would fail miserably. Would die probably 10 years, maybe 12 years younger than his father. Because, like I say, he got into idolatry. And that's one thing that Almighty God will never put up with. 
He will put up with the sins of his saints. He will put up with sexual sins of his children in both testaments. But he won't put up with idolatry. And when you get into idolatry, you are really on slippery ground. Go to 2 Samuel, please. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 20. Time is slightly against me. Uh, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 20. There's another very interesting piece of scripture which needs to be read this morning. And I'll come back and do part two next Sunday. I'm not through with the subject yet. Uh, it's always difficult for the preacher to present uh, the scripture as best as he can without taking sides uh, to try and be uh, impartial, neutral, as best as is possible. His own standing in the Lord may not be particularly good. His state, of course, is perfect because he's born again. But it's sometimes tricky to uh, deal with these verses in a uh, professional manner. Second Samuel chapter 20, Second Samuel chapter 20. Look at verse 3, please. And David came to his house at Jerusalem. And the king took the ten women his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, and put them inward, and fed them, but went not in unto them. No more sexual activity. So they were shut up unto the day of their death, living in widowhood. Widowhood. These are David's wives. Concubines. There was no marriage as far as the state was concerned. There was no feast as far as the state or as far as scripture was concerned. This took place behind closed doors. But the Lord says that those women were his wives. Going back to Leah's handmaid being a wife of Jacob. And you know that he had four wives. He had the two sisters, the two maidservants. And here David's concubines. I mean concubines? Like sex slaves, but not quite. I don't think David was abusive. But a concubine is less than a wife. And Abraham is in heaven today. David is in heaven today. Abraham is going to be on the new earth. Jacob is going to be on the new earth. King David will definitely be on the new earth. As will Joseph, who married a pagan, a Gentile, whose father was a pagan priest. You see how difficult this is. The complexity of scripture. You could spend your whole life trying to work out... What is what? And I'll say one final thing, going back to what I said at the beginning of this message. If you were to survey people and ask them to define what adultery is or what a marriage is, they would struggle terribly. But here's some figures for you. If we are to accept what society would have us to believe concerning what a marriage is, would that include same-sex couples? Would it? As of 2006, in fact, by the end of 2006, 15,000 same-sex couples got married. Are we going to recognize that? The state says we should. And out of those 15,000 same-sex couples getting married, scores went on to get divorced. But were they ever married to begin with? And of course the answer is no. So they weren't married to begin with. Why are we wasting our time looking at them as being married people? And their divorces, according to the word of God, are not really divorces. So you see, this is a difficult subject. And next week we will return and add more material to this subject.